bum bum bottom 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 bum b
is Duke reckoning with whatever he saw in Transformers issue number two and pursuing quote unquote the truth. But in pursuing that truth, the story goes into some surprising other realms. Lisa, even though I knew you had really enjoyed Void Rivals and were loving Transformers, I was a little worried that you weren't going to dig Duke that much, given, you know, your your lack of interest towards all things G.I. Joe and really all things military-based. I think that would hurt my dad's feelings because he is a Marine. But I think it's like part of my like rebellious nature too, where I'm just like, yeah, I don't watch football and I don't care about the American military. That seems terrible. No, not that you, like, I wasn't, that's not what I was saying, Lisa. You do not like, you know, war movies. You do not like military movies or comics or stories. Like that's just not a narrative that, that connects with you. Right, right. I'm a person who kind of loses the big picture when it comes to like any kind of war story, even like fantasy and stuff like that. Whenever the stakes become too large, I become uh, detached. Yeah, yeah. But like from the beginning, Joshua Williamson made it clear like that's not the kind of military story that we're getting with Duke. The intentionality behind it is getting into Duke's psyche and what made him the person who is fit to lead the G.I. Joe. Yeah, and there's also no denying Tom Riley's illustration in this series. We have been huge fans of his work ever since The Thing, the next best thing that Mm -hmm. he did with Walter Mosley, as well as his Ant-Man series. And he is just such a natural fit with the G.I. Joe aesthetic. And for me, as a longtime fan of both of these properties, I mean, G.I. Joe and Transformers, those were some of the first toys that I ever had as a kid. Reading the Energon universe feels a lot like how it felt when I first read the Ultimate Universe, when you're having people like Brian Michael Bendis and Mark Bagley recreate the ideas of Stan Lee and Steve Ditko in Ultimate Spider-Man. But what's really validating is that you, Lisa, who has no nostalgia for either Transformers or G.I. Joe, is also really digging what's going on with the Energon universe. No, I have no nostalgia, but I do have like a genuine curiosity. You look so excited. Like when when we got the news, everybody has to read Void Rivals and then Brad going like, there's a Transformer in this. I was just like, I was just like, look how cute he is. He's a glow. Yeah, yeah. When we were reading Void Rivals number one together and I was like, Jetfire, baby, Jetfire. And Lisa was like, I don't care at all about this Jetfire character, but this Salila and Derek situation's interesting. It intrigues me. And then like, at the end, this is not at all related, but at the end of like the Transformer film, what oh, was that called? Oh, the new one, uh, Reven- not Revenge of the Fallen, uh, Rise of the Beasts. Rise, Rise of, of the, the Beasts. Beast. I didn't see it. It's like uh, spoilers but- for Rise of the Beasts. <laughs> there's a there's a GI Joe in that, and that also got you very excited. <laughs> I saw that at a press screening, right? And, and I was there with my buddy Brian. We host the B and B show on Prince George's County Public Television. Link in the show notes. Uh, we went to that screening, and when it was revealed at the end that that little base was a G.I. Joe base. Um, I'm going to shout an F. I'm going to shout an F-bomb, guys. Uh, a guy behind me went, Woo! What? <laughs> <laughs> and that place around me, I guess it was like all 40-year-olds, they just lost their ever-loving mind. And like that was a great moment. You're like, ooh, that's exciting. We're going to get some G.I. Joe and Transformers movies, hopefully. But like that movie is nowhere near as good as what's happening in the Energon universe. So then once we got Void Rivals and that started kicking off, and then we've got Transformers, I mean, what they are doing with these characters, I mean, this is 
this is like Transformers, the movie, the animated series. It's legit. And again, that enthusiasm that you had kind of piqued my interest. But really, what sold me on the Energon universe was who was building it? Mm-hmm, who were mm-hmm, the creators mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that Robert Kirkman like put his little magic finger on and was like, you get to build a world with me. Yeah, we're you know? longtime marks for Daniel Warren Johnson. And we knew once we heard that he was attached to the Transformers series that it was going to be like our bag. And Joshua Williamson and Tom Riley. Like we love those two. But there's just something inherently interesting to me that children of the 80s and 90s are going back to the pop culture they were engaging with in kind of a enthusiastic childlike way and recontextualizing the messaging that they were getting. Through sheer like cultural osmosis, I understand that the G.I. Joes were, were seen as like, you know, they're going to set you on the right path. They're going to give you some food for thought and that it was also extremely like, Raw, raw America, pro-military. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, knowing is half the battle. I mean, the the wave of G.I. Joes that eventually spawned the cartoon and the comic book series, like, they came into being because Hasbro wanted a toy to compete with the Star Wars action figure line, like that three-inch action figure line, and that desire to compete came at the moment that Ronald Reagan became president, and it was about, like, reigniting this nationalism, this patriotism in America. And now that those kids from the 80s are adults, they're realizing, oh, that nationalism, that patriotism is way more complicated than we thought. And Joshua Williamson and Tom Riley are taking on, like, the unpacking of that. I'm a little bit of a weirdo. When I was growing up in the late 80s, early 90s, my interests always, like, ran parallel to the mainstream but like very rarely intersected and and it was the same for my siblings like I had an older brother he wasn't into G.I. Joe's we had maybe a Transformer maybe two Transformers but he was like into the Transformers but I still find myself going back to that like more innocent time that like you know elementary school age and doing the same sort of work of going, this was the messaging I was receiving. How can I reconcile with that now and still love what I loved in the past? I was super into Disney princesses. That's pretty mainstream. I was very into Disney princesses. And I do remember having the thought of like, my life would be more magical if one or both of my parents was dead. (laughs) Like, like that's that's a bad deal. I remember thinking like, you know, I wish I was like Belle, but uh, the beast never became a man. <laughs> like that's that's really weird, you know. So so I I am doing the same work, or even like people I consider my heroes, like Mister Rogers. I love Mister Rogers. I love my socialized television. I loved PBS growing up, but like there are certain things that he promoted that would not work. And you are. I seeing- do not work. You are seeing entertainments that are trying to recontextualize both of those things. Like, yeah. You know, the recent Little Mermaid. Actually, like all of the recent remakes, reboots of the Disney princess stories. And even with Mr. Rogers, we've had several documentaries. We've had that Tom Hanks movie, mm-hmm. uh, Why Don't You Be My Neighbor, that are also reckoning with a lot of what was going on back then with a modern lens. 
And I do wonder how your life would be different if we had gotten some licensed comics into your hand when you were a teenager or when you were a kid. Like if we had gotten you those Muppet Babies comics to little Lisa, yeah. if we had gotten those monkeys, those Dell monkeys comics to teenage Lisa, like would you have dove into comics in a severe way much younger than when you did? Uh, you know, because like you got the comics when, like in college, right? Yeah, I have experienced like licensed things. We had a ton of picture books with the princesses in them or like the Muppets in them. I, I think the closest thing to like the Hasbro G.I. Joe thing is like I had American Girl dolls. Yeah. yeah and I devoured those little novellas that they had that came with a little different outfits. I just didn't experience like comics. They just weren't a thing. Like other than comic strips, they weren't really a thing in my house. I think readers tend to be a little snobby when it comes to licensed properties, licensed books, licensed comics, but I actually find them to be incredibly powerful. I know within my own experience, you know, the first books I read were Star Wars books. The first comics I read, I mean, it was G.I. Joe 103 from Joe Gumbinger's comic book shop. That was the first book I ever picked up. The RoboCop 2 movie adaptation. Uh, the, the, like, if I had not gotten my hands onto those comics, would I be the comic book maniac I am today? Would this podcast even exist mm. without G.I. Joe comics? There is this thing of like, once you've gotten a kid hooked on comics, then the natural progression is that they stop reading comics and they start reading novels, and um, that's just like so ridiculous. Look at our niece. Woo! She started reading comic books because of the Wings of Fire series. Right. She blew through all of those novels, and then she devoured all the spinoff comics, and now she's reading Jeff Smith's Bone for the first time. She read Ethan Young's The Dragon Path. She's hooked on comics. I don't necessarily think that the Energon Universe books are made for the youth market. Like, yeah. maybe some kid will get a hold of them and become a Transformer or G.I. Joe fanatic, but mostly I feel like the Energon Universe... Like, its target is me? But the Lord's work is still happening through licensed comics. Paw Patrol comics, Wings of Fire comics, the Stranger Things comics. But I don't think that the exclusive function of licensed comics is to hook new readers. And I think the Energon universe, I think that the heavy lifting that it is doing is using G.I. Joe and Transformers as this cultural touch point, right? It's a place to go like, okay, you know the G.I. Joe Joes, right? You know the Transformers, right? That's where we're starting. Mm, we're, mm -hmm, we're going mm -hmm, to use this mm -hmm. as a jumping off point. There's a shorthand there. Exactly. And, and we've had this conversation about like Batman. Why are there so many Batman stories? Because every Batman story starts with, you know Batman, right? And it's just like, okay, so this is a cultural thesis statement that I'm building on this shared idea. Yeah, yeah, I love that. That's so, 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 so true. And if Skybound has anything to say about it, they will build a universe as expansive as Batman's with not only the Energon universe, but the A Real American Hero universe. They've brought on Larry Hama and Chris Mooneyham to continue that series with issue 301. Yeah, but that isn't like one universe. That's two 
two universes. Those two things are not intersecting. Correct. Yeah. And I, you know, I think there could be some confusion there. Although I think that uh, Skybound is really working on the branding of both and making it clear to the audience that they are different. We did pose that question to Robert Kirkman at the New York Comic-Con Energon Universe press panel. And he did have like some interesting words to say about that. Are you gonna drop an audio clip? I sure can. Ooh, I feel like I'm on NPR. Can you talk about the balancing of the messaging between the Energon Universe and, you know, G.I. Joe, a real American hero? Uh, at some point, issues will be coming out at the same time. Is there concern there? Well, I mean, I think we've done, like, we've worked with design at Skybound very closely to make sure that the branding is very clear. I mean, if you look at uh, the Energon Universe books, they have this very clear corner box that has this Energon Universe indicator and, ha and has these cool characters uh, in the top right-hand corner, like, harkening back to, like, classic comics. Uh, and that's something that's going to be present on all the Energon Universe books and is very much not present on Real American Hero. And, uh, you know, there will be very clear logo differences and, uh, you know, we're making sure that we're keeping, you know, the separation of church and state uh, as clear as possible because one of the things that, you know, we're trying to accomplish here is uh, uh, as clear and easy to follow as all of my creator-owned books have been with the different kinds of formats and not doing too many spin-offs, like keeping things as uniform as possible so that the consumer experience is as easy as it can be. Um, you know, when you burden uh, a consumer with, well, this is the Captain America from this, and this is the Captain America from that, and this trade follows this, and this trade follows that. It's confusing for almost everyone immediately. I mean, as a collector, if I go into the back issue bins now, it is a nightmare because there have been a thousand issue twos in the last eight years, and it's like, I don't, like, in, in back issues, I don't know how this works anymore. It's like the system is completely broken. And so it's something that drives me crazy as a fan. And so I'm in a position of power at Skybound so that I can make sure that the fan part of me isn't driven crazy by the stuff that we're doing. So that rambly answer is just my way of saying it's something we're on top of and it's something that is very, very, very important to us. We've all suffered from that as comic fans. And part of me like rebels against it. And I'm like, that's what makes comics beautiful. There's branches <laughs> in all of these directions. But also, yeah, it does get kind of baffling. And sometimes you will pick up a trade and where a thread is just like dropped nope. and you're like, uh, but whatever happened to, oh, I have to read this other thing. And you know, it is disorienting and weird. And I don't think we're gonna get that with the Energon universe. Although, it is funny though, like I posed the same question to Larry Hama in an email interview and you could read the exact exchange on the Comic Book Couples Counseling website. But Larry Hama's response to this was, look, uh, when I was at Marvel, when I was at IDW, there were always competing G.I. Joe books. And I didn't care what they were doing in those books. I only cared about what I was doing. And no one remembers those books, but a real American hero is still being published. Yeah. So like, he doesn't care what's happening in the Energon universe. He's got a job to do with a real American hero. My question is, which does Robert Kirkman consider church and which one does, does he consider state? I would say Larry Hama is church, right? <laughs> uh, I, I would real say... Real American hero is church. Yeah, yeah. I say a real American hero is church. Duke number one from Joshua Williamson and Tom Riley hits the streets on December 27th, Lisa's birthday. That's right. So many good comics are coming out on my birthday. You do not need to have read 
any of the other Energon Universe books, like you don't have to read Void Rivals, you don't have to read Transformers, even issue two gets recapped in the pages of Duke number one. But from a different perspective. From a different perspective and from a different artist. And we talked to Tom Riley about uh, replicating Daniel Warren Johnson's action sequences. And the other cool thing is that Duke number one is running parallel to Cobra Commander number one, which Joshua Williamson is writing and Andrea Milana is illustrating. And we we discuss, you know, that adventure a little bit, too. But before we can actually get to the conversation with Joshua Williamson and Tom Riley, we need to do some referrals sponsored by Omnibus. Omnibus, for those that don't know, is a modern digital comic book store and reader app carrying your favorite single issues, volumes and omnibuses all day and date. Just like your local comic book store, you pay per book, but digital. Their focus is on building an excellent customer shopping and reading experience and using novel discovery features to help fans find their next new favorite book. They feature top-tier content and already have many of the top publishers in comics today. In the spirit of helping people find their next new favorite book, we have our referrals segment. The idea is to give our counselees, that's you guys, further reading on the themes of the episode. Think of it as us sending you to specialists to further your healing journey through comic books. And Omnibus is now available on any browser. If you've got a device, you've got a browser, you can start searching and shopping immediately. Lisa, I went first last time. Do you want to go first sure. this time? Sure, okay. sure, sure. Oh, oh, eager, eager. Yeah, because mine actually fits the brief today. <laughs> I'm really excited. Well, let's hear it. So I wasn't into G.I. Joe's. I wasn't into Transformers. And to tell you the truth, I really wasn't into My Little Pony. I had a couple of them, <laughs> but the person who was into My Little Pony was our elementary school's official... Horse girl, oh. and that was Karen Ferry, and she was my very best friend. You're putting like Karen Ferry on blast as the official horse girl? Of my elementary school in 1991 to 1992? Yes. Okay. There was another girl named Natalie who came in like fourth grade uh -huh. who was also a equestrian type, but, um, but no, Karen was it. So I did do some playing with My Little Ponies, and I did watch the uh, ad for the My Little Pony movie many, many times because it happened during one of the Muppet movies. Yeah, I've seen VHS. the film, Lisa. Your experience of 80s pop culture is way more holistic than mine. Uh, yeah, I, I had my own uh, My Little Ponies. I had Care Bears. I saw the Care Bear movie. Didn't like that lion character. But the Omnibus app has many <laughs> My Little Pony comics from IDW, but the one I decided to feature is the My Little Pony 2022 40th Anniversary Celebration, which is actually an anthology with three really cute My Little Pony stories about the present-day pony fans and the present-day ponies going back in time to meet the ponies of 40 years ago. My particular favorite story is called Tales of Dream Valley, and it's by Jeremy Whitley, art by Amy Meberson, and it's about the ponies of today, like, going up to the attic to bring down some, like, historical documents, uh -huh. and they find an original copy of My Little Pony, 
Tales from Dream Valley. It introduces like the different pony characters and reveals some like pony lore. Of course, that lore no longer applies to the like current ponies. And so one of the ponies is like, there are sea ponies. And the and the other pony is like, this isn't even necessarily like historical. You know what I mean? The proper research hasn't been done. And I just love the idea of the ponies of today looking at back at our like very surface level backstory of our ponies and just being completely baffled and disgusted. It's so cute. And it sounds like it speaks to what you were sort of discussing earlier in this episode, this idea of taking these cherished properties and using our nostalgia and our adoration for them to talk about stuff of today. Yeah, and the idea of um, just because like something more something different exists today it doesn't delegitimize what we hold precious from our personal past well for my referral i was thinking somewhat along the same lines although i did not fall back into the my little pony world but i did choose something from idw publishing I'm referring another Godzilla comic. I know just a couple weeks ago, I suggested everyone go out and read A Half Century War. I still feel very strongly about that. But I would like to point people to a miniseries that is happening right now on the stands. And that is Godzilla War for Humanity from Andrew McLean and Jake Smith. Andrew McLean is the cartoonist behind Headlopper, one of my all-time favorite books. He is just writing here. But Jake Smith is bringing these kaiju to life, and they are crazy cool looking. The plot of this particular Godzilla story revolves around a new kaiju called Zoospora that is infecting other kaiju and turning those kaiju against each other as well as us. In the second issue, there is a great battle between Zoospora and Angiris. <laughs> Uh, that results in much devastation. Uh, the main characters are a group of scientists who are working for the Kaiju Migration Group, which is the group that's in charge of making sure that the Kaiju, like Angiris, migrate in certain patterns away from places like Tokyo. But the second issue is out. The third issue is going to come out, I believe, uh, this Wednesday. And it's simply just a cool-looking story. Jake Smith's art is very cartoony, but also hyper-detailed. Uh, like, the kaiju faces are where you really want to live as a reader uh, of this book. And the characters, you know, they're going through their own turmoil and stuff. But I'm, I'm mostly here for the monster fighty, smashy, smashy stuff. And I think it also relates to Duke thematically because Duke has his own like kaiju experience and then he, he does. does get trapped in the bureaucracy of how do we deal with such a disaster. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. That is a good link there that I wish I had thought of, Lisa. Well, I get full credit. It's like I won referrals. I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. Both of those titles are currently available on Omnibus. My comic is only $1.99. Smash that purchase button. You will not regret it. And that's going to bring us to the end of our... Referrals. 
Rose. So as we previously stated, Duke number one comes out on Lisa's birthday, December 27th. Cobra Commander number one comes out on January 17th. Transformers, the third issue just dropped. Transformers number four will also be out in January. Highly recommend all of those things. And uh, I can't I can't honestly imagine any comic book couples counseling listener hasn't already devoured everything that's going on with the Energon universe. Back in August, we named it the most exciting event in comics. And I think uh, now that we've actually read these books, it's lived up to that hype. I don't think there's anything we have to lay out there as far as like spoiler alerts, other than like, you've already read Transformers too, right? Right? Right. I'm not done. (laughs) Okay. Right. And we've already spoiled Transformers 2 in this episode. Yeah, yeah. Frosting got the clap. He did. So let's get into this interview. Joshua and Tom, welcome back to Comic Book Couples Counseling. Hello. 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 Brad grew up a G.I. Joe guy. I did not. I have no... Uh. I have no foreknowledge. This is my first entree into the uh, G.I. Joe universe. Although we nice. did watch G.I. Joe, A Real American Hero, the movie last night. Way trippier oh, than cool. I thought. Way more magical than I thought. Um, really disorienting. But Tom, did you start out as a G.I. Joe guy? Everyone had like the toys. I had like the little three inch toys and I mm-hmm. saw the live action Channing Tatum G.I. Joe movies. <laughs> That was about it for me, though. I have not seen the movie. I know the theme song, though. It's incredible. So it's not as deep as Josh's, my my love for the property. I do love G.I. Joe. I love Snake Eyes. I love all the cool characters and the designs. But uh, I guess it was the toys and the live action movies is what kind of got me into it. And when you played with the toys, did you play Cobra side or G.I. Joe side? I think I just mashed them together, you know, in like a big pile with my buddies. So... I don't know if we ever picked sides. Whoever had the coolest outfit, so probably a, a Cobra guy. Cobra, yeah, yeah. So you guys read the backup. Okay, that's funny. You guys are the first. I wrote that on an airplane <laughs> with my son sitting next to me on the airplane. It was his very first plane ride, and we were on our way down to Disneyland while I wrote that. Um, it was funny because I was, like, writing it on my iPad. I don't normally write on planes um, outside a notebook, but I wrote that whole thing on there. Um, but yeah, you're the first person, I think, outside of it – is, it's interesting whenever you have anything you work on, and you're used to working on it in your bubble, you know, where it's just me and the editors and, and the artists. And then all of a sudden, other people read it. So it's uh, yeah, it's always interesting when it starts getting, like, out into the world. Well, I love the idea that you played Cobra Side. And it makes me wonder, what do you feel like that said about you as a child? And how do you think that influenced you as a writer? Uh Oh, I always like villains. I mean, look at, look at, look at, look at Superman. Like, look at what I'm doing in the Superman book, where it's like, it's about, you know, Lex, it, it you know, and... That, that book probably should have been called Superman and Lex, but it wouldn't have sold that way. And DC would never let me do that. Um, but, you know, I've always liked villain characters and I always find them to be very interesting. And I think sometimes villains are more fun sometimes. I mean, I know I'm not alone in this, right? Like there's all kinds of memes about this. And, and uh, I have this one saved on my computer um, about like bad boy memes and how all you want them to do is become a good guy in the end. <laughs> like everybody just wants them to, you know, suddenly turn to being on the good side. And I love those moments too. Like I, one of my favorite like tropes is when like two enemies suddenly join forces against something, a bigger force, you know? Yeah. Uh, I always like when that happens in like, you know, thematically third acts of, of years of storytelling, you know? Um, but I think they're interesting. I mean, you know, sometimes heroes, 
it's funny, heroes can be kind of um, limiting at times. You know, there's only so much they can do where either anti-heroes or villains can do a little bit more. I think with me as a kid, you know, I don't know. I, I guess I just gravitated toward uh, some of the villain characters. You know, I'm not sure necessarily what this is about me as, as, as a kid. Maybe there was, you know, I definitely was a bit more of like a rebellious kid. So that was probably part of it where it's like you get to see, because villains, I mean, this is, villains always have way more fun. I mean, just look at Loki. Right. It's yeah. just like he is having a blast and, and maybe that's a part of it. And, and, you know, they had such cool designs, right? Like the, the Cobra characters had really cool designs. They all look cooler. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there's something just about an unrepentant jerk to Destro. There's I no redeeming you. Destro. He's a massive <laughs> jerk. No. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why, you know, in all my books, I always try to find a way to put a jerk in there. So it's like. When you go back and even when I started on Flash, that was what Godspeed was. Like August was intended to be a jerk character, right? So it's like, even when I'm doing uh, Batman and Robin, you look at like how I write Damien, where it's like, he's a little jerk, but he has such a big heart, you know? Like, uh, and so I, I guess I gravitate toward those kinds of like jerky characters with the heart of gold, um, which is not always villains. Sometimes villains, I mean, there's definitely a line with some villains, mm -hmm. uh, but I'm also like, you know, I, I'm a big, uh, wrestling fan you know and I, and I like watching heel turns and that kind of stuff and and i think there's something really just compelling and, and you look at uh, good villains the ones that have like really strong motivation for why they're doing what they're doing it's just all kind of i i just find them to be extremely compelling like the like villain arcs villain arcs can be really just really interesting well this explains your approach to duke a lot because the first two pages of the issue we get the backstory like this is the duke you remember from you know yeah. the larry hama run or the cartoons or the toys or whatever but this duke has gone through an experience in transformers issue two and it has shattered his reality and the duke that you're playing with in this book is is almost broken almost yeah. i say he is he is broken yeah, that was the, the yeah. point with him was broken we, we talked about this earlier this morning um but it's like i'm always fascinated about characters who have and this is a big time story thing that happens in almost every story where it's like characters have their world and then something changes and i always find it interesting when something changes that is supernatural or something that is outside the box that can completely alter their worldview and how that can be extremely um, traumatic, realistically, you know? Like, I always put this in real life that, like, you know, you, you sometimes have to, you have to, when you're writing any any character, you have to sort of slow down every once in a while and think how you would react to to something. And it's like, yeah, if you are Duke and you think you know everything and you've gone through a lot of stuff, but you think you know it all, and then all of a sudden one day you see a jet turn into a robot and then it kills your friend, that's a lot. And it's a lot on a traumatic level of watching your friend die. Like that's already its own massive trauma. But to think that, you know, again, it's like, what else is a lie? What else is the truth? And I, I think that's something for, for Duke to suddenly be questioning things that he's never even considered questioning. And, and, and having this kind of crisis of faith and feeling like, you know, basically his country's lying to him or at least not letting him get the information that he wants, right? Like they're pushing him back and you know he rebels against that and and i wanted to show what it took for him to get there really just kind of yeah break him down just break, let's break the character down because when you break characters down it's when they reveal themselves you know so it's that's that's where my head was with him the first opening pages the dialogue to me was so effective you're using these phrases that 
we've grown up hearing. You mm-hmm. are a man of action. You're well, the right at- stuff, right? And yeah. then Hawk uses this phrase that I really love, which is you are becoming a walking American nightmare. Yeah. And I would like you to dig down on that turn of phrase for a moment. Like, what does it mean to Hawk for Duke to be a walking American nightmare? Especially how it reflects a real American hero. Right. Yes. Okay. So here's the thing about this. I'm going to get, I'm going to get deep with you into how that phrase came about. I'm going to be really candid with you. That originally was not the line of dialogue. The dialogue Mm -hmm. was completely different. And we went through like four variations before we could figure out what it was because so here's the thing. Section eight, Section 8 is not a real thing anymore. It hasn't been a real thing in a very long time, right? Mm -hmm. And so with this book, we're trying to make sure there are certain elements, you know, when it comes to ranks and lingo and phrases that are current and and real, you know, like, and respectful, right? So the idea of calling somebody Section 8, I actually didn't, I wasn't even sure it was appropriate anymore. And then I went and looked and I'm like, oh, no, they don't, that's not a thing. It's not a thing anymore. So I'm not going to have, you know, Hawk, this decorated person called Duke that. So then we started going back and forth and I was looking at things and at one point, um, at one point he called him a soup sandwich. That's uh, which what I still thought it was. You thought it was that? Yeah, dude. So I still thought sandwich. it was that. No, we got rid of soup sandwich because it's too silly. That is actually a phrase they call people who are worthless because a soup sandwich is worthless. That is what it was. But I was like, him calling him worthless isn't it because he's not worthless. So I kept going back and forth on this. And it was like a game time decision. What are we gonna what are we gonna call him? What is what is an insult in this moment? But not an insult, but just kind of like actually says something, right? And you know, you start playing all those ideas of like, oh, okay, well, he's you know, a real American hero, you know, all of these ideas. And that's when I was like, there it, it's funny. The reason that popped in my head is because of Cody Rhodes. Mm. Because Cody Rhodes' nickname is that he is the American nightmare because his father was the American dream. Right. And I just, that popped in my head and I was like, Oh yeah. Like if the idea of having somebody who is what they believe, and he says this, and I, I actually changed an earlier line and there's something that comes up in issue three. There's a, there's a scene in issue three where Duke is talking to two people. I'm not going to say who they are because of spoilers. And they have a whole conversation about this, about the fact that Duke was, he is an incredible asset, but he is like American made created to be a specific, specific kind of thing, right? Like he was created to do a certain kind of job, right? Like he was trained, he was born, it is in his blood to do a very specific thing. And then when he turns on that thing, the way they respond is that they see him as it, that's their nightmare, right? Mm-hmm. It is their nightmare of you create in a lot of ways, a perfect soldier, and have that perfect soldier then rebel to them is a is a nightmare. So that's where all those ideas came into that one line dialogue. But it was definitely a journey to get to that. Because <laughs> it was, yeah, it was something, when I wrote the script, it was something totally different. And I went through, like, yeah, the four variations. And then when we landed on that one, I was like, no, this is perfect. Because of American Hero, American Nightmare, it, it lines up of, of that is how... That is how Hawk in that moment sees him. Mm. It gets me wondering about what it's like to work within this license. And, and this is for both mm-hmm. of you. You know, is there something different about working here than working on, say, you know, Superman or The Thing? Well, not not so much for me. It's kind of all business as usual for me. 
I know that's not super interesting to say. There is a little bit more back and forth between um, myself and editors. And with it being licensed, some things need to visually line up with what the licensor wants things to look like. But it's all been pretty smooth. It's all been fun. Um, just a little bit more hands-on in terms of the licensor. But even that, it's not a big deal at all. It's very no, they want to make sure that we're we're on point with certain things, but the you know they've given us so much room to breathe. You know we've got a lot of freedom and a lot of trust, but there are things where they're like you know there are little stuff that they're like no this you need to make sure these these pieces. I mean that's always the best kind of projects is when you early on establish you know when you're working on a licensed property, as much groundwork as you can do ahead of time is key. Because and, and Skybound did so much before we even came in. I mean, I I started talking to Skybound about about doing this like maybe five or six years ago. Mm. Um, so they they put a lot of work into it before we even got to us working. Um, you know, if you set up guardrails for what you needed to be, you know, and, and parameters, and then you let those be wide enough, people can play within. But if everyone understands those parameters at the beginning, that can be really incredibly helpful. Um, working on projects like this, I mean, you know, I always look at all of it as like, it's kind of like you're babysitting, you know, like you're, you're shepherding these projects, but they're not yours, you know, like I don't own these properties. They are, have a, you know, a lot of parents, but have a life of their own at the same time. And so this is like me, you know, I think, I think it was Matt Fraction who sort of compared it to like a relay race where it's like, okay, I'm handing this baton to you, but you got to keep running. And you got to make sure this gets to the next person safely, mm -hmm. right? Like that's part of it. You know, you're not, you're not, it, it's interesting because even when I was on Flash and I think it's a weird balancing act of like you're babysitting, but you also need to make it your own at the same time. You know, you can't, it's like walking that fine line where you don't want to have a complete disconnect where you're just like, oh, this is not this thing. You know, I'll, I'll just do whatever. It's fine. It's somebody else's thing. You want to make sure that you still take a level of ownership of it and still put your own stamp and put, you know, honestly, put some of yourself into it. I mean, I think you guys both know this. We've talked about it before where it's like, I find writing and create and creation of anything is a form of therapy. And so it's like, you still got to put yourself into it. You know, you got to make it yours a little bit and still tell a story. Um, when you're working on projects like this, you just, you know, you work with your editor and you work with, Everyone, a lot of communication, a lot of, a lot of talking, a lot of communication. But then like, that's also the fun for us is, you know, there's this other element where Duke connects directly into what Daniel Warren Johnson and Mike Spicer are doing <laughs> over in Transformers. And Tom, you get to take a scene from Transformers 2 and show it through Duke's memory in the first issue of Duke. And it's like, oh, it's just so fun to see like another angle on that moment. It's a lot of fun. And they... it's, it's very scary because Daniel is so good. <laughs> so to have to kind of shot for shot. Yeah. Go toe to toe I... with him is very tough to do. And whether or not I succeeded, you'll have to read the book. But I had a lot of fun doing it. Yeah. Was that your was that the last thing you drew in this issue one? Or did you draw that in, in order while you were doing I, the issue? I tried to draw it mostly in order. So I probably drew that near the beginning. Yeah, those are funny things. I think in the script, I just wrote, like, just copy what Daniel did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because it was like, you know, when you're working on... I think you'd written the script before that scene was drawn. There were some different yeah. things in the script. I'd had to, I had to get the the ink proof of Transformers number two. 
yeah we knew we knew it was going to happen but you know it's like you're working in at the same time as these projects and they were coming out earlier than us because daniel's also drawing it means he was writing earlier than i was like yeah. i had a little bit more time but it was like yeah i wrote issue one and i just wrote i blocked off like four pages for a long time i was like these four pages will line up with what he yeah. is doing over here and then it just all it all worked out you know it's a lot of a lot of us talking to each other interesting yeah to juggle that stuff when other people are drawing things that you also need to end up drawing in mm -hmm. a similar way you end up yeah. having to kind of put those things on the back burner till you get the appropriate reference or uh sometimes you got to make stuff up yourself yeah <laughs> which is scary in the afterward you talked about how um you wanted to break down duke to his raw state and mm -hmm. i'm just wondering like what does a the raw state of a person mean to you from the inside out and then tom i want to know what a person at their raw state means for, like from the outside in like visually how do you create someone who is in their raw state i guess for me when i, I say raw is like <sighs> vulnerable and then open and the ability to kind of like it's weird i don't want to call it rock bottom i think there's a difference mm -hmm. yeah. right like i don't think it's rock bottom i think it's just that idea of like a moment of realization where you are vulnerable and open and able to kind of take a step back and and, and be a kind of self-aware for a moment you know and like actually start to process what's happening to you you know, because I think oftentimes in life, we don't actually take the time to process what, what we're going through or what's happening in the moment. You know, I think it's a lot of like, you know, I think we oftentimes live in either the past or the future. We don't spend a lot of time in the present. And I think for when you're letting yourself be raw for a moment, you're allowing yourself to just take a fucking deep breath and be there for a moment, right? And actually feel what you're feeling and actually be there and let yourself deal with it. And so for him, I think, you know, when you look at the course, you'll, you'll, you'll see as the course of the book goes on, but it's like, you know, everything happens to him with Starscream. But from that moment on, he's moving, you know? And oftentimes what we do is, as people, we move through life, we just keep moving. And we don't take the foot off the brake at all. We might take it off a little, off, off the gas, but we never actually stop. Mm -hmm. And I think once you become raw is when you allow yourself to stop for a moment. And I think that's what we're going to do with him where it's, you'll see over the course of it where it's like, he's just going. Cause like once, you know, the stuff happens in issue one, he is going and you'll see in issue two, issue two is a, a fairly action packed issue. There's like some, but it is him like moving from A to B a lot. And I think by the time we get to issue three, you start to see where it's like, no, he's starting to think more about what's going on. He's being confronted with stuff. Uh, he's being confronted with, um, again, there's characters he's talking to that sort of confront him with some of uh the ideas around him, I guess. And so by the time we get around to later stuff, you'll get to have those moments with him where he does stop for a minute and kind of take in everything, you know, and it's part of his, it's part of his arc. You know, there's definitely like a, a therapeutic moment later in the, in the series. Josh had an idea. He came to me with an idea to give him kind of shaggier hair mm -hmm. and some scruff and like a street clothes look. And I think that captures the raw state pretty well. You know, Duke is like the clean cut poster boy, the soldier, and to strip him of all of that stuff, basically his visual identity. Mm -hmm. And yeah. kind of to have him look totally different than he's probably looked before. Yeah, I don't think um, I've ever seen 
looked like that before. So it was just about Me neither. Yeah. And yeah. it's not just one he goes through kind of a series of appearances through the issue and they were all fun to come up with mm-hmm. and just kind of all taking into account where he's at in the story and designs that serve functional purpose throughout the series. It was very yeah. cool to get to think about that stuff. We never see Duke pissed. Like you never see Duke mm. Duke really angry. And I that was part of this too, where it was like, let's you know, I've always heard that Duke uh is considered one of the more like boring straight men of, of J.I. Joe, right? Like he was maybe a little basic. And so I was like, all right, we gotta find ways of, of taking that in different directions with him. And it's like to see him actually angry, you know, to to actually originally that he was actually more angry. <laughs> I added a little <laughs> bit more pop and dramatic. But I just, I love melodrama. I love people who are dramatic. So uh, I wanted to have more of that anger from him. But, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. We'll see how that goes. And I, I think that Tom, you know, when you see him kind of like, it's interesting when you can see a character that is like getting closer to snapping. And it's like you see throughout the issue when he starts to piece together certain things. And even though he's not correct, right? Like but he is on the track of something. It you can tell where there's that scene where he's got the guards and they're taking him out of the building and you can just tell that is like not a completely put together person compared to what yeah. we normally do with him. Uh, Lisa and I have been talking a lot about uh, transformative decisions, mm-hmm. uh, pun not intended, <laughs> but like this, this this idea that you make a choice and you're not aware of what's going to happen because of that choice you made. Yeah, it's impossible yeah. to make an informed choice because you don't know the person you're going to be after the so, choice So Duke encounters yeah. Starscream. What's going on? Let me pursue what is going on with Scar- Starscream. But in doing that, Duke as a series could go off, as you're saying, in a very different direction. And that's what's exciting about Duke number one is that it's... There are many possibilities of where this story could go based on Duke wanting to know the truth. Yeah, but Duke is definitely going to be a different person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we, you know, we had these, we had a lot of conversations about what his emotional arc is. And I, I'm not sure how we talked to you about this or was in an earlier podcast, but we had had dinner in New York Comic Con. It was me, Tom, uh, Sean Makowitz, Robert, and Daniel. And we were at this like awesome barbecue place. And uh, yeah. we were talking original art and movies it was it was like our favorite movies and all this was really funny but then we started talking about the emotional arcs of these characters and the the moment like just there was some just like fun wacky stuff we were talking about you know like things we wanted to see but then we did talk about a bit about duke and some of the emotional stuff with him like where some of the stuff is going to go down the line and it's like there'll be some when it comes to his i'll say this his relationship with transformers like the fact that he doesn't know the difference between an autobot and a Decepticon. Mm-hmm. right like he doesn't know any are they aliens who knows right like he doesn't know any of that all he knows is what he saw that's it and and how does that impact his decisions after that and then what does it do to him you know yeah like the kind of decisions he makes as he goes and there might be some you know harder choices in there and he doesn't know where it's going to take him but he's going to be a different person than he was before but it's going to take a while to get there with some stuff like there's some i think emotional stuff with him and how he's going to relate to other characters down the line uh, that I think will be be interesting. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see how some of this stuff plays out. You know, like we again, we're at that dinner, we were talking about stuff that we're like, that might not happen for three years. Yeah, You know, we want to make sure we let these stories breathe, all these characters breathe and we're not in a hurry. You know, it was, it was interesting talking to Robert about this really early on. Robert was sort of like, you know, I'm, I'm a very like worrier, stressed out person all the time. 
And so they were very like, you don't have to worry about certain things. Like just let the story breathe, let the story breathe. And so I was like, all right, all right. So I had to like, you know, let go of, of always being in a rush to get to certain stuff. It's different when you're doing, I think a DC book or DC books, I feel like we have to kind of hit, uh, you, know, you have to kind of keep the hype alive all the time. And with this, it was like, the hype was different. The hype was more like, let's just tell the best story we can and try to let these things breathe. And it's okay if it takes us a really long time to get to some of the stuff we want to do. Cause I think it'll be more earned by doing that. So snake eyes is like six years off, but globulus is like the <laughs> next arc. Oh man. Who knows? Who knows? No, snake eyes is funny. Like, uh, yeah, I don't know. Robert, he, he always jokes about how like, we have no idea when Snake Eyes is going to show up. And I always take the extreme of like issue 150. That's when he'll show up. <laughs> uh, but, you know, we want to make sure. I mean, you know, you look at what, what we've been doing and it's like we're trying to do a different story. You know, we want it to still be within the world that has been built. But we want to make sure that we're telling our own story. And to do that, that involves twists and turns. It's like Bumblebee getting shot in the face in Transformers number one. You know, it's like that kind of stuff that we're, we're building. We want to make sure that we're able to tell our own story and there's some twists and so who knows when who knows when snake eyes is gonna show up you know i'm hoping that when it does happen it's something we're able to keep a secret and it uh it's a really cool moment i mean some of the stuff in uh, i i I can't say more i'll start (laughs) i was just gonna say maybe when snake eyes shows up he'll get shot in the face too how do you say (laughs) i did have that thought I did have that thought Who knows? when I picked up Duke number one. I was like, is page one Snake Eyes getting shot in the face? Um, that would be really funny. Yeah. The, the good news is that Lisa does not care about Snake Eyes. I don't. Uh, like 19 questions about frosting. And Brad's like, nobody gives a shit. He's not a toy. Nobody cares about frosting. Oh, dude, frosting is so funny to you because, like, I made up his... <laughs> Frosting's really funny because, like, I just made up his name because it was, like, he didn't have a name at some point. And I was like, you got to... We gotta give this guy a story. <laughs> we yeah. can't just it be a throwaway thing, you know. Frosting. Uh yeah, I had to do I had to do uh yeah, that was something that again was like not even in the original script. It was like I added it later because I was like, we have to give this person an actual like story, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it, it can't just be this person that gets splatted on one panel. It's like, let's give this person a story. Uh it'll mean more. It always means more. That, that know, was literally our argument. I was just like, who cares about frosting? He has a wife and a child. <laughs> a child. Yeah, how old is that kid? Is he going to come for revenge? Who knows? Uh, I haven't seen the new yeah. Top Gun movie, so. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. Uh, gentlemen, thank you so much for chatting, Duke. We're yeah. uh, extremely hyped. Our hype meter is very high on all things Energon. But after this issue, uh, I was just so thrilled that Lisa liked it as much as she did. because <laughs> I was I was really nervous that oh, she was going to like it. it. She loved it. Awesome. I'm really curious what you're going to think when you read Cobra Commander. Yeah. It it is a trip. (laughs) Well, just send it my way. We're ready. (laughs) I think we're like a couple weeks away. Yeah. All right. Well, take care, everybody. All right. Thank you. Thank you. And there you have it. Our thanks again to Joshua Williamson and Tom Riley for talking Duke number one with us. Again, the first issue comes out on Lisa's birthday. It's my December birthday month. 27th. And nobody else's. Yeah. 
Lisa likes to keep the eye in Christmas. <laughs> that I do. I really enjoyed the part of the conversation, Lisa, where you brought up the walking American nightmare line. Yes. And how we discovered that that was a line that kind of just came out of editing. Mm -hmm. But whether by design or accident, what's so stimulating about that line is how it subverts a real American hero and reflects the catastrophe, the crisis that Duke is currently in issue number one. Because the Duke that we know and love, that old heads like myself know and love, we see him for only the first two pages, that man of action. But for the rest of the comic, we are seeing a Duke spiraling, desperately seeking this new truth that he has uncovered. We also have the layer of we know that he is running headfirst into the wrong side of history, where he's going like, all Transformers are clearly bad. Which is an ugly reflex that humanity is known for that is also directly discussed in Transformers issue number three. How exciting. My other favorite moment from the conversation, Lisa, is when you confront Joshua Williamson about his childhood predilection to play with the Cobra figures. Yeah, because they're bad guys. But like, um, confront feels like a strong word. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> like to me, I go, that makes perfect sense, though, that someone who liked to play the Cobra side would become a writer because the the bad guys, you know, especially in like children's in in children's mediums, like the the bad guys are the ones who are actually creating the story because they're the ones who are causing the conflict. Where if there wasn't a Cobra side, G.I. <laughs> Joe's would be about a bunch of dudes getting along real good. Yeah, yeah, fair, fair. But I also think that what Joshua says, you know, they just had the cooler clothes is true. Also valid, yeah. Right? Like Duke was the toy I never played with. I would play with Snake Eyes because he's the ninja with the swords and the Timberwolf. But like Duke is so bland. He's so beige as a toy. Mm -hmm. So if your options were Duke or Cobra Commander with that rad faceplate, I'm going to pick Cobra Commander. And so now Joshua Williamson has made it his mission to de-beige Duke. And yes. that's amazing. Yes, yes. And I think he does a really rad job. And the way he's able to do it is through Tom Riley's illustrations. Yes. Tom Riley's Duke is badass. And scruffy, which is yum. So that's going to bring us to the end of this episode, but do not fret. We're actually going to drop another creator conversation at the end of this week. We will be talking to Sarah Meyer about their new memoir, Monstrous, a transracial adoption story. And it is absolutely one of our favorite books of the year. And if you are a licensed comics fanatic, you no doubt know about Sarah Meyer already. They are the artists behind the last arc of Saturday Morning Adventures, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, The Shredder Con. Oh my God, The Shredder Con episode is so good. And then of course, as per tradition, we close out our year with the Stampies, yeah. which is Brad and my little award show of all of the books we've loved this year. So many great comics came out this year. And if 2023 is any indication of what 2024 is going to be like, it's going to be pretty darn rad. Lisa and I have already looked ahead and compiled a list of our most anticipated comics of 2024. And we will be publishing that as an article on comicbookcouplescounseling.com. And talking about anticipation, we have many Schema fans coming out of the woodwork to tell us that they are so excited that we are covering Scott and Emma in January. And we're actually, we're feeling some pressure. 
We really want to deliver. <laughs> but if you haven't listened to it already, go back and listen to our last couple session because I hate to toot my own horn. But I think it's pretty good. I think we do a really good job. Yeah. It's, it's our horn. It's maybe my favorite episode that we recorded in 2023. Super proud of that one. Uh, also in January on the 7th, that's the 90th anniversary of Flash Gordon as a character. Yeah. And I think we're going to have to celebrate that too. Uh, no announcements yet, but stay tuned. Something cool will be happening around that date as well. The future, again, is so bright for all things comics and all things comic book couples counseling. Okay, Brad, I better go get some shades. Oh, boy. But they better be prescription uh-huh. because I still have a lot of reading to do. Okay. And I want to be able to do it with my shades on. Okay. Where can our uh-huh. listeners send their words of affirmation to you? Great transition, Thank Lisa. You. I so love it. Uh, listeners can find me on most social medias at MouthDork. If you have words of affirmation for our logo, you can send them to Aaron Prescott at A Cool Hand Fluke. And if you have some words of affirmation for our radical banner art, show poster, and fifth anniversary poster, please send them to Karen charm at karen underscore x-men fan you can also visit their online shop and get your own prints link in the show notes lisa though where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you I'm always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. If you'd like to spend more quality time with us, you can subscribe to us on Podbean, Spotify, YouTube, Google, Apple Podcasts, or whatever app you prefer. We're everywhere. If you'd like to get exclusive, you can join our Patreon, where you'll get more content, including weekly bonus episodes. Lisa, go ahead and scrap out Google Podcasts. It's not a thing anymore. okay. (laughs) If you'd like to reach out and touch us electronically, you can email the podcast, cbccpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit our website, comicbookcouplescounseling.com, or follow us on all the socials at cbccpodcast. You can give us the gift of five stars on Apple Podcasts, and if you'd like to do an active service, why not write a review of the show while you're there? Yes, please. We are fluent and receptive in all five levels, languages it really warms our hearts and helps the pod so until next time friends keep your love tank full and your psychic rapport open oh that was serious i know i it's hard to mix it up every time were you trying to be like a drill sergeant or like a gi joe nope okay (laughs) yes and lisa no but you suck